Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, thanks for being here this Friday, January 12th. Well, you know, for most of us, it's the end of the week. For those of you who will be working this weekend, those of you who work at medical centers, those of you who work at big box stores, those of you who work at restaurants, thank you for your service. I appreciate the fact that uh, you make the rest of us um, be uh, give us the ability to take life a little easier on the weekends because you are there. And I, I really appreciate that. So, well, 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 lots going on this week. Uh, we have lots to talk about. It is Friday, and you know what we do every Friday. We open up the phone lines, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT, okay? I will try to remember to give that out. I've been told sometimes I forget. Uh, so we are going to be talking about what you'd like to talk about, the news of the day, the news of the week. I've got some stuff that I haven't had a chance to share with you that, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a froggy, that uh, we will be playing some sound clips, some stuff that's serious, some stuff that is less serious. Um, but I would like to hear from you. You can call me on that line and you can text me on that line. Um, I will keep an eye on the text line. You can text me in a question or comment for today. I also want to remind you that this coming Monday from 4.30 to 5, Tony Murray is going to be joining me. We're going to do another one of those Ask the Lawyer segments where for 30 minutes you can get free legal advice. Tony's specialty is um, wills, estates. And, uh, you know, questions that have to do with those aspects of our lives, powers of attorney, et cetera, and so forth. So if you have a question for Tony, uh, text it to me right here, right now. As I said the other day, I'm, I've started a document on my computer so that anybody who texts me in a question, I will add it to the document and make sure that Tony and I get to it because, um, uh, you know, a lots of times by the time you hear me talking to somebody, you think of what you want to ask, you get the phone number, you make the phone call. 30 minutes goes really, really fast. And I can't tell you how many times that uh, we have been wrapping up a segment and all of a sudden there's like four or five callers. And I really feel badly about that. But usually, especially when somebody's at the end of the day, there's just simply no wiggle room. So if you think of a question for Tony Moray, text it to me. Get your little texty phone out, 773-763-9278, and send me the question right now. Or even, um, actually, I don't think you can... If you send it over the weekend, it will get lost because all the texts that we get are kind of lumped together, and uh, I probably wouldn't be able to find it. So try to text a question for Tony today while I'm on the air, or um, 
or Monday, like right before I go on the air or right after I'm I'm on the air. Okay, and I thank you for that. Uh, Phone lines uh, are already lighting up. Let's um, let's go. Uh, Andy said uh, Jim had called in from Chicago. Hey, Jim. Uh, Hi, Joan. What's on my mind is there's a chorus of programs that this is a person here. Dozens of women explaining their harrowing experiences in pregnancy, how they're in death's door before they uh, can get some kind of affirmation, and some that are rushed to different states. Diane Sawyer had one last Friday, if you saw it. I did not. Tell me about it. Anyway, she had another chorus of women, maybe 20, 25, and all of them are explaining difficult points in their pregnancy and how there's a third party involved in this somehow, like a Spanish Inquisition that gives thumbs up or thumbs down to the health of the mother, to the health of the person. And a few of the people are rushed at the last hour to New York or states that uh, give medical attention to people. Mm-hmm. And and this is just beyond beyond reason. It's beyond reason. I mean, if I'm starting a young family, Joan, I'm going to make sure I'm not in a prohibitive state because my yeah. wife, I, 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 uh, her health is the most important thing to me, and I'm not going to uh, jeopardize if something yeah. goes wrong with the pregnancy. I'm not going to. I, I want that, as you said many times in the radio, it's between you and the doctor, and that's all it's between. That's but, right. And then, um, and then we we have the GOP uh, candidate who brags about turning. Over. I was the only one who could turn over Roe versus Wade because he can only he's the only guy could do anything. But yeah. that's one of his big accomplishments. Yeah, that was um. You know, he was he's kind of skirted that issue because of course he's trying to figure out which way the wind's blowing. But he did say that recently, Andy. I think you have that sound of Trump talking about Roe v. Wade. Can you play that, Andy? For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. They wanted to get it back, right? You wouldn't be have that. There would be no question. Nobody else was going to get that done but me. And we did it, and we did something that was a miracle. When I walked onto the stage today, a gentleman in the back, probably works for Fox, nice guy, said, sir, I'd like to thank you. I said, for what? He said, you saved two million lives in the last Three years. You saved two million lives. And I said, thank you very much. I knew exactly what he meant. Two million lives. And nobody's done more in that regard. You know, um, somebody who analyzes Trump's speech has said one of the ways you can always tell that he's lying when he tells these anecdotes about how somebody stopped him. He always says, sir. And that's like that's like his tell. He's he's making this up. But this was, you know, he did a counter programming to the Republican presidential debate. He did an interview with um, Brian Kilmeade and some other anchor at Fox. And that's where where he said that. And, Jim, I'm going to save that clip because here's what I predict. I think as Donald Trump's campaign for the presidency progresses and he gets wind of how unpopular this is, he's going to change his tune. He's going to say he's probably not going to say we should bring it back, but he'll say things like, well, you know, there should always be exceptions. And and, you know, we really have to moderate. He'll say something to back off. And I want people to remember that he is claiming credit. And um, his attorney, Elena Haba, the one who is working with him in New York, when um, 
she was they were talking about whether or not this immunity thing was going to his claim that presidents are always immune from any prosecution. When that gets before the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh better deliver because Brett Kavanaugh owes his seat to Donald Trump. And oh, boy, did that make some waves. I've got my park on, Joe. You have a great weekend, dear. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yes, uh, that was my suggestion that we all wear our parkas all the time so that we are insulated by all the bad stuff. Anytime anybody talks about uh, anything negative or we have to listen to Donald Trump's sound bites, we put on our parkas to keep our our bodies protected from the ugliness. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Dave's calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hello, Dave. Hey, hey John. The um, and that Chris Christie with the hot mic moment. Well, yes. Remember back when President Obama was in, and he had a couple of those hot mic moments. Well, the late great Dick Kay said. Anytime he had a mic pinned on to him, he said he treated it always as they always were hot, even if yeah. it wasn't on. Yeah. So I think that thing, I think Christy knew the thing was on. Well, I mean, he you know, became that long. Um, yeah. You know, he may have been mic'd up because this what what Dave's talking about is. Um, Chris Christie was talking to some people behind the scenes before he came out in front of a relatively small group of people to announce that he was pulling the plug on his presidential campaign. And he was probably already miked. And he thought that, you know, if he had a decent um, audio person, that mic should not have been hot until Chris Christie went out to speak before the cameras. Uh, but clearly it was hot. Not only was it hot, but somebody was recording it. And then you we actually have that audio. And at the end, you can hear it abruptly cuts off. So I don't know whether the person running the audio board suddenly realized what was happening or somebody else stepped in and did it. Um, we'll talk about it in a second. But let me play, Dave. Let me play the actual hot mic audio for the audience. Listen to this. People don't want to hear it, Wayne. They don't want to hear it. We know we're right, but they don't want to hear it. Right. And and there's you know we couldn't have been any clearer. Right. We couldn't have been any more any more direct or worked any harder. So you know. Forget she spent sixty eight million. Yeah. Oh, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, she spent sixty eight million so far just on TV. Spent sixty eight million so far. Fifty nine million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She's still 20 points behind Trump in the right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's going to, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes. Always. I talked to, DeSantis called me. Petrified that I would. Ooh, that's where it cut off. DeSantis called him petrified that I. How do we think that sentence ends? My guess is DeSantis called him petrified that he was going to endorse Nikki Haley. And they wanted to make sure that wasn't going to happen. You may have seen reporting that alleges that if Chris Christie endorsed Nikki Haley and even 50 percent of his supporters, um, you know, went over to her side in New Hampshire, that she had the at least mathematical possibility of actually beating Donald Trump. A, I don't think that's going to happen. 
And especially not after he knows it's become public that he said she was going to get smoked. Because the first thing people are going to ask him if he endorses her is, well, why would you endorse a candidate who you think is going to get smoked? And he would have to answer that. Um, but I don't think he's going to do it. I don't think she's going to get a lot of Chris Christie voters. But let's say for some reason it happened. Let's say for some reason that either in Iowa or in New Hampshire, uh, for some miracle happens and Nikki Haley comes out looking a little stronger than Donald Trump. What does that mean? I don't think it means anything. I think that people who've donated money to Nikki Haley will be pleased. But does that mean that she is actually in a position to take the nomination away from Donald Trump? I don't think so. I don't think so. She's gone as far as she has, let's be clear, by trying to not alienate the Trump voters while still trying to woo the people who are ambivalent about Trump. Might vote for him, might not. I don't know. She has been trying to appeal to both of those groups, and they're very different groups. And if she really wanted to make a real serious stab at this, she would have to start really going after Donald Trump, which would mean that she would lose any MAGAs that like her now. And Donald Trump, you know, one thing he does, if he thinks somebody's coming after him, he just destroys that person. He will make up a nickname for her. He will start disparaging her. And even the people who support her are um, are probably going to wobble in that support. So even if there was some miracle and either in Iowa or in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley stunned the crowd in the big picture. It would be winning a small battle, but still losing the war because Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee unless he takes himself out of the race. And the only reason he would do that if he is literally physically and or mentally less competent than he is now. So can you believe that? He's Chris Christie saying that Nikki Haley has spent $68 million dollars. Ron DeSantis spent $59 million, and he said Haley spent the $68 million. That's just what she spent on TV. And, uh, and his campaign has spent $12 million. <sighs> He's right. Yeah, that's punching above your weight to last as long as he did in this um, contest with uh, lack of funds. It'll be interesting to see what he does now, because um, I'm going to a little bit later, I'm going to share with you um, what he told the crowd when he um, ended his presidential campaign. So he definitely made it clear we haven't heard the last of Chris Christie, but where he'll go, what he'll do uh, is anybody's guess at this moment. Hey, let's go back to the phone lines. Steve's uh, on the phone. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, so a couple of points, and I, I do agree with you. I, I think Chris Christie represents sort of the old neocon tradition of the Republican Party uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
I mean, let's put things into context. I mean, you know, coming out of 2008, 2009, uh, that whole, you know, the Republican Party philosophy of how economics works is going to make everybody rich someday, trickle-down economics. Well, yeah, that sort of fell apart. And, you know, former Mitt Romney in 2012, you know, uh, had the backlash from that. There was no way he was going to win. And, and you know, for those of us who remember that race after that, that night, you know, Republicans were shaking. Ugh. Andy, why do you think why do you think Steve keeps having this problem? Steve, you never used to have these drops. And for the last um, pretty much, you know, for the last few weeks, even before the holidays, suddenly he just goes away. Steve, I'm glad you're back. We got to figure out what's going on with your phone here. Yeah, I tried calling you guys from my office line instead, but it didn't go through. You guys didn't pick up. So I had to go back to the cell phone. I don't know what happens. You're the only people I lose. It's so strange. So hopefully I won't lose you. In any case, um, as I was saying, you know, I I mean, in 2012, the Republican Party, they were shaking their heads post-election. You know, are we done? Are we ever going to win another election? And then in 2016, a bunch of them lined up, 16, 17 of them, plus Donald Trump, you know, all running for the same political real estate, except uh, Donald Trump was running. There we go. Okay. Hopefully uh, a little bit later, maybe maybe um, we can get Steve to go back to his office phone and and try this again. Listen, as long as we've got the time right now, I mentioned Chris Christie, what he actually said when uh, his hot mic (laughs) was made hot once again, only this time appropriately when he was appearing before the group of people that uh, he was going to explain his withdrawal from the presidential primary to. Uh, Let's listen to Chris Christie's final speech here. If Donald Trump becomes the nominee of this party, the moment that it happened was when Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pence and Doug Burgum and Vivek Ramaswamy stood on that stage in Milwaukee in August. And when we were asked, would you support someone who is a convicted felon to be president of the United States, they raised their hands. They raised their hands. And I did not. And will not. And I cannot countenance that behavior. Anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States is unfit themselves to be president of the United States. I want to promise you this. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. I wonder what shape that's going to take, those efforts to make sure Donald Trump doesn't ever become president again. Steve is back on a different line. Let's see if we can make it work this time. Hey, Steve, third time's the charm. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, Donald Trump was running for his own political real estate in 2016. And I think Chris Christie is a holdover from that era. You know, quite frankly, you know, when neocon politics dominated their party. And people just aren't willing to buy that any longer. Donald Trump has turned his party into a populist party. 
uh, a party of hate, xenophobia, racism in many ways. You know, I mean, say what you will about, you know, Mitt Romney's Republican Party. They were a lot of things. And yes, there were, uh, you know, uh, their share of races in that party. But it wasn't dominated by that. It was dominated by, you know, an economic philosophy about the role of government in our lives and taxation and regulation and so forth. And that's what the Koch brothers and well now a Koch brother, the Koch family, um, uh, backs in terms of Nikki Haley. They want to return to that because the bottom line for, uh, for uh, conservatives, especially big money conservative is, is that, you know, uh, the bottom line is served by a stable society in which people are doing business and we can all sleep at night, not worrying about what insane thing our president is doing. That's yeah. why they don't want Donald Trump as president again. I mean, the Frankenstein monster was created in 2016. They did business with him because they got their tax cuts and they got judges. But in the end, they realized he was a crazy man. You know, that's why we call yeah, it the he's Frankenstein too dangerous. monster. Exactly. Despite, so the, despite the upside. I mean, this is literally a guy who wants to pull us out of NATO, who wants to support Putin. Who, this is a guy who could get us involved in World War III. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing of it is that, you know, this is possibly among the worst of times that, uh, like, somebody as crazy as this man. And, and unfortunately, sort of, a, a, sort of a, cir- a circular cycle here in which uh, we already have instability. I mean, you know, for, if you haven't been paying attention, you know, because of the weather and everything else, I mean, we're in, in a, involved in, partially in a war in North Africa and in Yemen in terms mm-hmm. of Iranian-backed forces. And now, you know, we may actually find ourselves in a shooting war with Iran. Now, that's going to be bad enough, but what it will do to oil prices, you know, what the war with Russia already did to oil prices. Now imagine what it's going to do if if Iran can can no longer sell oil on the open market. I mean, you could see oil double and triple in price, which could give us that recession that we never got. And then, of course, what uh, Americans who aren't terribly sophisticated, who do they blame? They'll blame the guy who's in the White House. And that may throw the election over to Donald Trump. And then who could you think of that could be worse in a global crisis than Donald Trump? Yeah, sitting there. So, uh, you know, that's the problem here. It's, it's rare that foreign policy defines uh, presidential elections, as James Carville famously said, is the economy stupid. But in this case, foreign policy can determine what happens in our economy going forward. And that can throw the election uh, to, to Donald Trump uh, again, because uh, only several states are going to decide this election. I know it's great that people want to get out and vote, but California and Texas are not going to determine who the president is. We all know the, the four or five states that are. So, you know, that's just the fact of life that we live in. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for hanging in there, Steve. And, and thanks for calling back and making those uh, salient points, as as you always do. Um, you know, we did. Um, I agree with you. You know, where Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And I think even people, the one percent, the half of one percent who saw him as um as a tax cutter, I mean, I'm not saying that all of those people will desert, but there have to be reasonable people who saw what he did as president last time around and were appalled. Uh, I just can't believe that um, that, you know, if you're if you're already in the one percent, you know, do you need to be in the half percent? And is it worth having a man who is utterly out of his mind, a man whose every major uh, chief aide in his previous administration has come out, you know, Bill Barr, um, General Kelly, General Mattis come out and said the man is unfit, unfit. Not that, you know, they don't agree with his policies, not that they think he's too tough. They think he is unfit 
to hold that office. I have to believe some of those people will understand that, you know, losing a tax cut but keeping your country is a, is a worthwhile trade-off to make. It is Friday. Every Friday we open the phone line, 773-763-9278. You can remember 773-763-WCPT. Call me or text me on that line. We are going to continue our discussion after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Yes, it is Friday. Yes, it is your chance to join me on the radio and tell me what you thought was important this week. Let's go to the phone lines. Our good friend Roosevelt is there. Hello, Roosevelt. Oh, was it our Andy? Are we having a problem with the phones? Huh. Uh, Roosevelt, I just, um, you just dropped. So if you can hear me, uh, give us a call back. Um, I want to share two things with you. One, uh, I played earlier in the week. One is brand new. Uh, one is just too good not to play a second time. Adam Kinzinger did, um, early this week what he called a quasi podcast. I don't know why it wasn't a full fledged podcast, but he called it a partial podcast. And he talked about Donald Trump Trump, and what he believes is the way to approach Donald Trump if he is your opponent in a race. And uh, this is um, a tack that he has been talking about a lot lately and something that he said that he very much hopes of the Joe Biden campaign starts doing, uh, except for the smelly parts. The whiny stuff, I think Kinzinger is right on the money here. You'll understand what I'm talking about when you hear this. Listen to this. I think the way to go after him, if I'm Joe Biden or anybody, is to point out how much of a whiny, weak, sissy, victim, like annoying, bellyaching crybaby he really is. Like for four years, he was the most powerful man in the world. And yet he was the victim of everything in government. He, as the most powerful man in the world and in the federal government, couldn't stop these quote unquote deep state things coming against him. So let's say everything he's saying is true. He's so weak, he couldn't handle it. The truth is, it's not true. The truth is, he is a complaining, whiny, Belly, I got to come up with more words because I'm just going to look up the thesaurus and just throw it out there and be like, this is every one of what he is. He's annoying and he's exhausting and we're tired of his complaining. I think if you hit Donald Trump repeatedly on that, every time he goes on TV and complains about something, like, ah, here he goes, Mr. Complainy again, you know, with his whatever, he's just out there being weak. If you... Don't hit that once. Don't hit that twice. Hit that every day, repeatedly, how much of a victim he is. I think that will begin to set in even with his most ardent supporters. You're not going to turn him. But you're going to start saying, yeah, he's kind of whining all the time. I think you can break his facade by pointing out to people that it's not tough to stand in front of the media and complain. Like, that's just weakness. 
And he smells, by the way. And he smells. And you know what? And people are going to – they need to know he smells because it's just like he's a gross human being. Right now, they think he's untouchable. He's like a – he's magic. He's not even a real man. He's hes like a messiah. Like, no. He's a smelly, whiny, weak man. I think that is actually a winning strategy. On uh, a different interview, um, Mr. Kinzinger was asked to try to describe Donald Trump's smell. And um, he said, if you take armpit smell plus ketchup plus butt smell plus makeup and you put those four scents in a blender, that's what Donald Trump smells like. Uh, that clip has gotten a lot of airing. But um, on CNN, Mr. Kinzinger did have uh, other things to say about Trump. And also, he had things to say about Elise Stefanik, who is uh, very, very openly campaigning to be Donald Trump's vice president. Listen to this other clip from Kinzinger on CNN. Elise is so incredibly, insanely thirsty to be vice president. I mean, that's what she's doing. She's out there mimicking what Donald Trump says. He knows he's watching. He'd probably sent her a text, told her, good job, Elise. And she felt really good about herself. I mean, that's what she's doing. And she's doing And And this is a look, if I'm a rank and file member of the House still, here's where I would be upset. Because I used to be able to just say, Oh, Donald Trump, you know, I don't know what he says. I'm not paying attention. You now have the leader of the messaging branch. What you say as a Republican, the conference chair comes up with talking points now saying they're January 6th hostages. Here's what you're going to see, Caitlin. This is now going to be echoed over and over as it becomes a litmus test, whether you're a true conservative or not whether you say hostages or prisoners. And soon you're going to see more and more people saying this. I think it's so obvious. Just one of the areas I think, as well as Joe Biden did in that speech, one of the areas I think he really needs to push even harder on is there's this idea that Donald Trump is a tough person who's doing this authoritarian things because he's strong. The reality is he's a, he's, he's a whiner. He's frightened. He's scared. He's doing this because he's a victim in his own mind, and he wants to convince everybody he's a victim. Donald Trump is actually a very weak person, and I think that's the way to do real damage in his base, even though it's not necessarily going to turn the primary or anything like that around. Ah, Let's go back to the phone lines. We have Roosevelt back again. Hello, Roosevelt, my friend. Oh, thank you for taking my call before I uh, divulge my topics. Uh, have a happy weekend. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. You too. Okay. You know, I was listening to that cut. It was a great cut, by the way. But you know what that reminded me of? Hmm. It reminded me of me. I've been saying that for years. I said it <laughs> on your show. I go, yeah, because as a man, remember I told you, as a man, have you ever met anybody that's whiny, uh, victim, always a victim, and always a... Uh, everybody's against him, the whole Mm -hmm. world is against him. And he's right. He is weak. But here's the thing that makes him strong. His money. But that's another thing. We don't know how much he he really has. 
So that's what makes him strong. The fact of his techniques, he never has a new plan. It's always the same plan. Yeah. When he said, um, when he said about the Mexicans, no, he's doing it again. Only what he does, he shifts it to another minority group. He does it with the gays. He did it right now with uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, all this stuff is the same, same plan always, always. But let me tell you why I called. I called because of the Lincoln Project. There's a there's a short clip of uh, an ad that they're going to be putting out, and they put on the ad all those Democrats that uh, ripped them uh, two days ago, which is Jamie, what's his name? Jamie Raskin. Jamie Raskin. And the other gentleman, I cannot, Moskowitz, Moskowitz? Moskowitz, yeah. Moskowitz. And the lady from Texas. All of them are in the new uh, ad that they're going to be putting out, the Lincoln Project. So here's my question to you. You think between the Lincoln Project, Chris Christie, it just played, uh, you had this week on The View, Miss um, uh, Cheney saying that she's going to be voting for uh, Biden. You had Adam Kinsinger right now. He's going to be voting for Biden. So you think that doesn't that doesn't have an impact on the elections, first of all? I don't know. I would like to think that it does, but they have become pariahs. And, I, you know, there's a lot of people who could say, well, you know, they're just, you know, they were kicked out of the Republican Party. So now they're saying all this to get attention. I think if we get somebody who is currently much more involved in the day to day Republican Party, like a Chris Christie or hell, even Asa Hutchinson, you know, the 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 candidate for the Republican primary, you you keep forgetting about. If any of those people come out and say that they are going to vote for Joe Biden, I think that um, would probably be more meaningful to people. I think a lot of people in both parties, um, you know, don't know what to make of Kinzinger and Cheney um, because and they've been such vocal opponents of Trump for so long. But if somebody who is a little bit more involved in the current party starts um, talking about Joe Biden and voting for Joe Biden, that I think might potentially make an impact. And and uh, I'm going to close it with this. For some reason, all of a sudden, you know, I dabble and I call the Spanish stations. I think I've told you that before. For some reason, they've been getting calls this week this particular show that I listen on a daily basis, which I contribute, I call every day. They keep on bringing up George Soros. They keep on yes. bringing all this stuff that he's destroyed other countries. And I think that, that that's what they're working on. And now, let's not forget that not too long ago, Univision, which is Channel 66 here in Chicago, gave uh, Trump a... Uh, a young man that I never heard of and gave him an, an interview uh, and he t- interviewed him and it gave him all nothing but softball questions. And so I think that they're, they're pulling a fast one and that coincides with the numbers that they so-called on these new polls that the, that all of a sudden the Latinos are, uh, you know, going up on, on numbers as far as uh, supporting Trump. So this stuff is working. I don't know. Why all of a sudden this George Soros thing uh, out of left field? And on a weekly basis, there's a, there's a Spanish station 
way up the dial, it constantly brings up George Soros. So I don't know if that might have an impact. But they all of a sudden it's George Soros. And what about Joe Soros? And, you know, they're funding uh, the Democrats and they're just, he's destroying countries. So I think that they're trying to uh, reflect what they what uh, Fox News does and the owner of Fox News. So I don't know what you think about that. All of a sudden you get you get in these calls with all these different people. bringing yeah. up George Soros. You know, and, and in addition to the Hispanic population, I'm a little concerned that uh, the Democratic Party doesn't seem to me to be doing a lot to try to counter the narrative that somehow, at least within the African-American population, that RFK Jr. would do more for them than Joe Biden has done for them. And I really do think part of it is ignorance. People hear that name, Kennedy, and they think he is cut from the same cloth as John Kennedy or even his father, Robert Kennedy. And this is a guy who has the same name and yet shares none of their beliefs. And I'm very concerned that within um, maybe not so much the Hispanic community, but within the African-American community, RFK Jr. is turning out to be a more influential with voters than I would have ever believed possible. What do you think about his candidacy, Roosevelt? Well, and uh, to be honest with you, in the Latin community, community, they don't even mention him. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. But as far as Kennedy, I thought, I was under the impression that uh, he was going to take more votes from Trump than he would from... Uh, they, that was the word on him at the beginning of his campaign. But more and more, um, I see um, articles and people saying that it's possible his campaign is now really resonating in the African-American uh, community. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, Malcolm Nance, who, you know, is on with Stephanie Miller all the time, they uh, she and he actually addressed this recently. And he did what I hope a lot of African-American leaders will start doing. And he was like, if 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 African-American people are behind RFK Jr., they don't know who this man is. This man is not going to do anything for for them. This man is. um is a dangerous, incompetent uh, politician. He will not be a good leader. And basically what he said was anybody who's in favor of RFK Jr. should have their head examined. And I think we need, you know, I mean, I can talk all day long, but I think that people need to hear these messages from somebody whose experience resonates with their own. And I hope and you know Malcolm what? Nance is not the only leader to African American leader to start speaking out about this. I, I haven't been following closely uh, as far as uh, for Kennedy, but I, I don't know what specific thing he has said to for the African community to to, to support him. I, I have no idea. Really, he it hasn't. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. It so, seems to me, and I'm 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 not a I haven't studied this deeply. But it seems that 
a lot of the support he's getting from African-Americans is just people saying, I don't like Joe Biden. Joe Biden hasn't done anything for me. Therefore, I'm going to vote for, you know, I don't, you know obviously they're smart enough to know that Trump isn't on their side. Um, but, you know, I think that's where a lot of the I think that's where a lot of the RFK Jr. support is coming from. People who somehow feel like Joe Biden hasn't done enough for the African-American community. Well, one thing he has done, look who was the vice president. So, yeah. to me... Yeah, who did he appoint to the Supreme Court? I know. Exactly. I know. So, to me, from what I understand, it's the most diverse uh, 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 president that expect the most different kinds of people. Look, yeah. he's got the... Transportation. Look who's got for transportation. Look who's got a vice president. Like, to your point, look at the Supreme Court. So he has done more for the African community than he has for any from any other president. If you think, as far as appointments, as far as getting uh, people uh, in charge and his, uh, you know, cabinet. So I don't know why that would pull away from from Biden. I, I don't understand. Whereas, what did Trump do? He put Ben Carson, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, and that was a joke. Roosevelt, um, thank you for the call. I'm going to move on and see if I can get a few more callers in before we have to break for news. Um, Diane is on the phone from Chicago. Hey, Diane, thanks for calling in today. Hi. Um, I'll try and make this as quick as possible. How about why the Republican Party, especially a Freedom Caucus, is bowing down to Trump all right, and kissing his ring? How about one word? Blackmail. You put that into the mix, and it starts to make perfect sense. Now, how is he blackmailing them? Every suite that he offers them at Trump Towers, New York, uh, Washington, D.C., Chicago, all right, his golf courses, all right, they're all bugged. He's got <laughs> hidden cameras in them. And then he offers them down to have dinner with them and spend the weekend with them. And then he offers them prostitutes, both female and male prostitutes. How about underage teens? How about even because of desperate Epstein, little boys and little girls? You know, Diane, what I think is, is, is sad. I don't think he needs to go that far. I really don't think he needs to put that much effort into it. They are so terrified that he will simply go in front of a television camera and make fun of them and give them a bad nickname and say that they're no good. And then the whole MAGAverse turns against them. I think you're giving him too much credit. I don't think he has to go to those lengths. I think they're terrified of him. January 6th and January 7th, they were all speaking out against him. And then he invites them down to Mar-a-Lago. And bam, they turn. They, they do, all of a sudden, they're kissing his ring and singing his praises. All right, and where he's keeping the blackmail would be in that casino safe that was in uh, Mar-a-Lago. Why invite him down to Mar-a-Lago? Why not, uh, why not up to Bedminster? All right. Why specifically all of them had to go down to Mar-a-Lago? Because that's where the information was being kept. <laughs> and I'll say one more thing. Why was Madison Hawthorne primaried out? Because he snitched bragging that they have orgies and uh, um, coke parties, drug parties, 
key bumps. Remember Madison Cawthorn really talking about this? And then the next thing you know, he gets primaried out and he's gone and you haven't heard a word from him since. And he was bragging that um, it was being held off uh, out of Washington, D.C. in wealthy mansions and wealthy <laughs> estates. Yeah. Oh, right. Diane, I don't know. I'm not I'm not going to within when it comes to Donald Trump. I'm not going to rule anything out. I just I just think you're giving him too much credit. I don't think he has to work that hard to make people afraid of him. But thank you. Thank you for the for the call. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Denise is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Denise. Hi, Joan. Happy New Year. And to you, too. Um. I'm only one black person. I'm a senior citizen, a former educator. I, you know, I, at least from my perspective, I don't know anybody who's really interested in Robert F. Kennedy as a serious candidate. Oh, my God. That's so um, good to hear, Denise. I, I think one of Joe Biden's real serious problems is communication. Yep. And he's, you know, he's not communicating... I think he's using an old playbook of going to churches and talking to black folks in churches. And there are a lot of us that don't go to church anymore. And we're getting our information from a lot of different sources, not the ones that have traditionally been the uh, primary sources of communication in the black community. And he's not using a playbook um, that works anymore. He needs to be... He needs to be finding people who are in the community, other than religious leaders, who can communicate with young people, who can communicate with women, who can communicate with these other demographics, and not have one template for a very diverse and heterogeneous group. Black people are not all the same, and I think that's been one of his problems, is he's using this old playbook. Um, I was listening to Roland Martin talk about they had in in Atlanta a meeting, a closed-door meeting, I think with, uh, with Kamala Harris, about suggesting different ways to reach the black community that have not been used before. Finding uh, public relations folks who are African-American who have those kinds of relationships in the community, thinking outside the box. And I think this is... You know, I can't speak for the Hispanic community, but I think they're just as diverse, if it's not more so. And the Asian community and other communities, they got to change their strategies for this election because the ones they're using are not going to work this time. It's interesting that you say that because that is um, uh, what President Obama has been saying. He's very concerned that the campaign, Joe Biden's campaign, the way it is structured right now is not being as effective as it could be to get the message out. And, I, you know, the wonderful thing about Joe Biden is that he has so much experience on Capitol Hill. The downside of that is he's used to doing things a certain way. And I think you have you right. have absolutely nailed it. It's really hard when your whole life you've done things one way and you found that to be largely effective. And then all of a sudden people are saying to you, well, no, that's not the best way to do this. You know, you should there should you should do this another way. And I think I I think that the campaign is going to 
wake up and make some changes. And I hope there's somebody's listening to you, Denise, and that happens sooner rather than later. Uh, thanks so much for I the call. Too, yeah, me too. Thanks Thank for you. the call. Good. Um, I really like your insights there. Let's uh, squeeze in one or two more calls before we break for news. Ron's on the phone lines calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron. Yes, uh, it is a uh, January 6th trial this week. Uh, Trump's lawyers were, were uh, saying that uh, a president should have total, total immunity. And one of the judges asked, uh, should uh, immunity be for a president uh, selling top secret information to foreign countries? Or should a president get immunity for uh, ordering an assassination of a political opponent? And uh, Trump's lawyer said, yes, of course, he has mm-hmm. immunity. And, yeah. then, uh, and then they added, uh, uh, unless uh, the president was, uh, was um, impeached and convicted, and then he added, if the president uh, resigns before he's, he's impeached, then he has total immunity, in other words, uh, untouchable. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And My so favorite looked- part of this whole thing was not only this absurd, yeah, sure, the, you know, what it was was the, the judge said, if you've got a president who um, hires assassins to kill their political opponent, is is that covered by immunity? And the Trump lawyer said, well, you know, with qualifications, my answer to that would be yes. I mean, come on. And then Donald Trump gets up there, and, and this was the part that I thought was really galling. And he explained, he's not asking for this presidential immunity. People say it's just for him. Well, that's... That's not true. Every president needs this kind of immunity. Even Joe Biden needs this kind of immunity because if presidents don't have immunity, they'll never do anything because they won't. They'll be afraid to do something because maybe they'll be prosecuted for it. Oh, my God. What a bunch of what a bunch of utter other nonsense and pablum. Hey, you know what? There's another way that presidents can avoid prosecution, and that's don't break the law. Yeah, yeah. Radical notion, huh? Oh, very. And uh, so it looks like the uh, Supreme Court will have to decide whether uh, we have a president or a king in the White yeah. House. Yes, indeedy. And uh, with this Supreme Court, I think it could go either way. Like I said, I really think uh, Elena Haba put her foot in her mouth in a really bad way when she said, you know, basically that Brett Kavanaugh owes us. He better vote the right way on this. And I mean, if I were Brett Kavanaugh, just on the basis of that comment alone, I would vote the other way. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Um, so it's going to be real interesting to see how this uh, evolves. And, um, Ron, thank you so much for the for the call today. I always appreciate it when you um, touch base with us. Uh, I've got some really interesting sound I want to share with you. We do have more callers who I want to try to get on the air. But uh, first and foremost, we, of course, are going to be breaking for news uh, at the top of the hour again That phone number, if you have never called in and are trying to figure out how the heck to remember it, try 773-763-WCPT. You can call me on that line 
and you can text me on that line. And in addition to any comments you might want me to try to share on the air today, uh, you can also let me know if you have a question for Tony Moray, the lawyer. He's going to do an Ask a Lawyer segment on Monday. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. It is Friday, and every Friday we open up the phone lines to listen to you, the listeners. What were the stories this week that you thought were important enough for us to talk about again today? Let's go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle. Paul, WCPT host of Sunday's show, a Kitchen Table Progressive. Hey, Paul, how are you today? Oh, hi, Joan. Thank you very much. Um Getting back to Donald Trump and his uh, immunity, ridiculous immunity, uh, please, and his, and, his, and his attorney's silly interpretations of the impeachment clauses in the Constitution. Uh, there was also uh, a case, a previous Supreme Court case uh, known as Ex Parte Young from 1908, where it this had to do with the governor of the state of Minnesota, however, uh the, the upshot of the case is that, yeah, an official can lose official immunity if that official is enforcing uh, unconstitutional laws or is behaving in an unconstitutional way <laughs> and, and can be held personally liable, both civilly and criminally. So uh, that, that's already a case. But a uh, little tease for Kitchen Table Progressive this, this coming Sunday um, I'm going to talk about this in more detail because it's a little bit wonky. But this, with regard to Donald Trump being on the ballot or being excluded from the ballot in the state of Colorado, uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, says that Congress may remove such disability with a two-thirds majority in each chamber. Why haven't they? Huh. Hasn't, hasn't everybody, anybody ever considered, why haven't the Republicans even tried to do this? I mean, they don't have, the Republicans don't have two-thirds. They have slightly more than half, like about two votes or three votes more than half. But they haven't even tried. They have not, no one has mentioned this at all. As a matter of fact, though, the New York Times wrote an article in which they mis, misstated this. They said, the 14th Amendment says that only Congress can remove this disability. That's wrong. No, that's sentence A. The 14th Amendment says that only Congress can remove the disability. Here's sentence B, what it should be. The 14th Amendment only says that Congress can remove the disability. It doesn't mean that other political powers cannot. So what this comes up to is since Congress has not acted, and, and Congress must act as a single body. It's not just the Republicans in the House or the Democrats. In the Senate. Congress is a single body. It speaks with one voice, though there are two chambers, which are from time to time controlled by one or both parties. But Congress can remove this disability, and because they have not acted, when the state of Colorado has, has imposed the disability upon Donald Trump, exercising its powers as a state, the other political body identified in the Constitution specifically has not acted. And what this means for the court, or should mean for the Supreme Court, 
is this is what is known as an unjust, a non-justiciable political question, because not all of the of the powers, the bodies uh, of power that are either expressly or or uh, indirectly mentioned in it who would have power by the Constitution have exercised their power, and in fact, one could argue that by Congress not acting on this and removing the disability. That's sending a message to the court that we don't think the disability should be removed, right? Well, I, I, you, come on, you, you, the sentence, the two words in that sentence that don't make any sense are Congress and act. You, you know, this Congress can't act. Um, you know, um, Illinois Congressman, uh, Sean Caston said the only thing this Congress has accomplished so far is they had n- new congressional pins issued because the Republicans didn't like the shade of blue that was on the old yeah. pin. So they had a yeah. new shade of blue and they and they issued new pins. That is the kind of action this Congress is capable of taking. <laughs> right, right. That That's true. But that that's a political decision that the, the American people have made. That, in other words, you could argue that, yeah, the American people wanted a Congress that couldn't act. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as far as the court's concerned, like, don't call on us to make the decision when your political bodies, the powers of the political bodies, cannot do so. That's what the court should be saying. And so the court should rightly take the case to let all bodies know, all powers know, that we cannot rule on this because it's, a, it's not right. Here's what would be right. It would be right if Congress had removed the disability and yet the state of Colorado still insisted that Trump not be on the ballot. Both are exercising their powers and they're not moving. And so what we have then is a constitutional impasse. That's when the court can, that's when it's right for adjudication. Um, by the way, if, if, if you're still listening, because Steve is a, uh, Gold Coast Steve is a political science professor. I, I would I would like for him to call on on Sunday and uh, you know kind of put his his uh, knowledge into this too because he he might know more about it than I do in some ways. But um, <laughs> well, well we, he has a lot of knowledge, and so if yeah. He's, if he's listening on Sunday, well, thank you for busy. calling in and talking about it here, and I'm happy to do that commercial. Um, Paul's show is on Sunday. It's right after the family meeting. So Steve from the Gold Coast. Uh, Paul, I think, is pretty much uh, asking you to call in so you can have a big discussion about this. Okay, how's that? How's that for a promo, Paul? That work? That's great. And uh, but also this Sunday is going to be true blue, true blue politics with Karen and Anita uh, in in the family meeting spot for from uh, oh uh, from four to six. So that's uh, the the true blue politics podcast with uh, Karen and Anita will be airing. Uh, and family meeting will be returning to live uh, live broadcast uh, on January 21st. Well, thank you for for that schedule update. You have clearly more current information than I do. Thanks, thanks for the call, Paul. Um, before we get to our next caller, I want to share uh, something that um, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the news of the day. But I'd like to kind of just for just a moment, maybe talk about uh, something that's a little bit less serious. You may have read or heard about this battle uh, between Jimmy Kimmel and Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers went on a, 
uh, ESPN podcast and implied that when the um, Epstein, the, the Jeffrey Epstein list of who was on his island, who was on his jet, who was in his phone book came out, that somehow Jimmy Kimmel name would be a part of that and 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 Aaron Rodgers was basically said that's going to happen and he's really ready ready to celebrate when it does and uh, Jimmy Kimmel um in a humorous way but he was really offended by that um and it has become this this big thing Jimmy Kimmel went on his show and said you know what you want to make those kind of accusations you should um we should go to court and so you can stand before a judge and show him the proof of what you're talking about, because there is no proof. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel thinks that Aaron Rodgers knows that, but was just trying to um, throw a little mud because Jimmy Kimmel has made fun of Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers believes that uh, the government release of unidentified flying object data was done to distract from the Epstein case, Aaron Rodgers, uh, even though he is himself vaccinated, is an anti-vaxxer and tries to pretend, tries to skirt the issue of whether or not he actually got vaccinated. Uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, opines on anything and everything. And uh, I think Jimmy Kimmel nails it. I mean, he's a guy who has succeeded in one area of life. And just like Elon Musk, you know, whether or not you think he's a good businessman, he's at least succeeded in business. And so he thinks these guys think that they're brilliant. They're smarter than the rest of us. And we should all listen to them. Anyway, Jimmy Kimmel did like a seven minute rebuttal to Aaron Rodgers. And I am not going to make you listen to seven minutes of this. Uh, I had Andy uh, grab a couple of uh, clips from what Jimmy Kimmel said, so you can just uh, get a sense of the disagreement and a news story that is a little bit less serious than a lot of what's not that accusations of lies against a public figure aren't serious, because we know those can turn into harassment and violence very easily. But um, I wanted to share this with you. We didn't talk about it this week, so I just want to share it with you now. Listen to Jimmy Kimmel. Did you hear this story about me and Aaron Rodgers, the former quarterback for the Packers? All right. So uh, what happened is he's a Jets quarterback now. He went on a show on ESPN, the Pat McAfee show, and out of the blue insinuated that I was nervous because the Jeffrey Epstein list was coming out. He said I was hoping it wouldn't and that he was going to pop a bottle of something to celebrate when he did. And then it did come out. And, of course, my name wasn't on it. And isn't on it and won't ever be on. I don't know Jeffrey Epstein. I've never met Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not on a list. I was not on a plane or an island or anything ever. And I suggested that if Aaron wanted to make false and very damaging statements like that, that we should do it in court so he could share his proof with like a judge. Because, you know, when you hear a guy who won a Super Bowl and did the, all the State Farm commercials say something like this, a lot of people believe it. A lot of delusional people Honestly, believe I am meeting up with Tom Hanks and Oprah at Shakey's once a week to eat pizza and drink the blood of children. And I know this because I hear from these people often. My wife hears from them. My kids hear from them. My poor mailman hears from these people. And now we're hearing from lots more of them, thanks to Aaron Rodgers, who I guess believes one of two things. Either he actually believes my name was going to be on Epstein's list, which is insane, or the more likely scenario is he doesn't actually believe that. He just said it because he's mad at me 
for making fun of his top knot and his lies about being vaccinated. <laughs> but here's the thing. I spent years doing sports. I've seen guys like him before. Aaron Rodgers has a very high opinion of himself because he had success on the football field. He believes himself to be an extraordinary being. He genuinely thinks that because God gave him the ability to throw a ball, he's smarter than everyone else. The idea that his brain is just average is unfathomable to him. We learned during COVID, somehow he knows more about science than scientists. A guy who went to community college, then got into Cal on a football scholarship and didn't graduate. Someone who never spent a minute studying the human body is an expert in the field of immunology. He just put on a, he put on a magic helmet and he, that G made him a genius. It's, Aaron got two A's on his report card. They were both in the word Aaron, okay? And can you imagine that this hamster-brained man thinks he knows what the government is up to because he's a quarterback doing research on YouTube and listening to podcasts? I looked it up. This is actually a thing. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people with limited competence in a particular domain overestimate their abilities. In other words, Aaron Rodgers is too arrogant to know how ignorant he is. <laughs> they let him host Jeopardy for two weeks. Now he knows everything. So uh, there you have it. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel goes on to say that, you know, he's not often wrong, but when he is wrong, he apologizes. And he... He said, I hope Aaron Rodgers will apologize. He said, I don't think he will. I don't expect him to, but I think he should. Uh, and and frankly, if he does, I will accept that apology and like move on. Well, no big surprise. Aaron Rodgers did not apologize, but basically said, oh, you know, nobody should ever call anybody a pedophile. I didn't call Jimmy Kimmel a pedophile. No, he didn't use that word. Um, and nobody should do that. I do not approve of calling people pedophiles. Did he apologize for what he said? No. I think Kimmel has him nailed. I mean, we've all seen this before. Someone, and sadly, it's usually a man, I'm not trying to be sexist, who achieves success in one area of life and believes that that he could only have achieved that success if he were a superior being. And since he's a superior being, he should opine on every topic under the sun. It's really exhausting. Aaron Rodgers, um, we are, you know, even if he hadn't been Green Bay, we are so done with him. We are just done with him. Let's go back to the phone lines. Our good friend Bobby is calling in from Indiana. I need me some. Oh, he, we don't have Bobby. Oh, okay. Well, hopefully Bobby will be able to call back. And uh, let's go to Eduardo, who's calling in from Florida. Hey, Eduardo, thanks for the call today. Eduardo, did we lose that one too, Andy? Hello? Oh, hey, Eduardo, Hello? thanks for calling. It's Joan. Go okay. ahead, you're on the air. Okay, you can hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah, I was going to say uh, I went to Brazil in December. Uh, it was very nice. Uh, first time there, because uh, I'm a fan of the Bossa Nova. Got along very well with the people. Uh, I was surprised that more people spoke Spanish. I was surprised about that. Hmm. And the food was great. Uh did a sailboat. Um, went to the Christ the Redeemer. Very, very nice. Very Petropolis, uh, it's a town north of Rio. Very, very nice. I definitely recommend. Hopefully more people will... We'll get out there. I know they're going to be coming out for Mardi Gras, but 
there's a lot of history to Brazil that I think people should know. Excellent. Did you get any sense for yeah, the political I'll, life? No, no. Um, I mean, crime is an issue there. They have a high teen pregnancy. Uh, there's some homeless in downtown. I didn't see anybody begging or using marijuana, uh, but they got the favelas, which are kind of the ghettos up there. That's a big issue over there. But uh, I felt safe because I did the subway a couple of times, even like uh, getting home from uh, around midnight from seeing a theater show. I felt safe. Excellent. Do you feel that way when you're in Florida? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just came from a networking event uh, last night driving. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool here. Nothing uh, out of the ordinary. I mean, they got to get this uh, home insurance issue uh, straight out. Oh, yeah. Uh, people bigger... in Florida having a hard time getting insurance because of all the hurricanes and floods, I hear. Right. Well, the good thing for me is I'm near Bush Gardens, so we're inland, and so we have high winds and uh, minor flooding because the street in the front of the house doesn't have a, a sewer. But uh, it's, it's minor, nothing, you know, to worry about. So, so what did you want to what do you want to talk about today? Yeah, I wanted to talk about what did you think about this um, operation that they did with uh, the U.K.? Because uh, they were interfering with the commercial shipping and they were having to go around like uh, South Africa. And that was you mean in, uh, in Yemen? Is that what you're talking about? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, what um, what Eduardo's talking about is I'm sure what you're seeing in the news that we have um, used our jet fighters to attack certain sites in Yemen because Houthi rebels have been firing missiles and basically harassing shipping in the Red Sea to the point where it has really impaired the delivery of goods and commerce in the area. And some of those missiles were also being sent over to American military ships and uh, we retaliated and um, we um, uh, shot missiles in some of what are believed to be the, the Houthi strongholds. And President Biden said, we did it. We did it in self-defense. And if it continues, we're going to do it again. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was fine. I mean, uh, I know that there was a lot of barking, uh, everybody from Turkey to the protesters to Congress. So I know some of there's going to be some opposition, but I in my opinion, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, there was no ground troops for this. I mean, it was all air, all land, I mean, uh, air, sea, submarine, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, I've been watching the news, and, uh, and, and so far, um, you know, because there was actually in my email box today at work, there was a statement put out by not the United States, but a whole list of, um, I don't know, six or seven countries who said, you know, this has been a real problem. Our commerce, our shipping has been disrupted. We fully right. support any efforts that are being made to uh, reduce the attacks that we are experiencing. And um, and we hope to get, you know, basically commerce back on track again. So there are, right. you know, the United States wasn't part of that statement, but there were a ton of countries that came out and said sort of like, thank you. Thank you for trying to um, put a, at least slow down this problem, if not indeed putting a lid on it altogether. Right. Right. Part of well, some, some of the countries that were probably sending ships out. So they were, they were part of the ones that were sending, mm-hmm. putting out the statement. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, Eduardo, okay, John, thanks, thanks for the call. call. Thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Karen is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Karen. Thanks Hi. for joining the conversation. Hi, Joan. Thank you for taking my call. Um, and I just wanted to say I am um, half of that programming note that Paul from Seattle gave um, oh. for this Sunday, 4 to Excellent. 6 p.m. So I, so I am a frequent caller into Stephanie Miller. Um, and then my friend Anita um, from San Antonio, she calls into Tom Hartman and Stephanie Miller. And, you know, we've been for years and we just decided you know with a year um from the uh 2024 election um that we really wanted to add our voices uh to the conversation and kind of sound the alarms for people um and you know just get people involved in the conversation and and making talking about politics because all You know, Andy, I'm starting to think that part of the problem might be with us. That's the third caller today that has just dropped in the middle of a conversation. We are going to have to, I think you should, uh, during this next break, I think you should go in the back room and you should check all the squirrels and make sure they're still alive and that they have plenty of nuts. Um, because my guess is we've got one or more squirrels that um, are maybe, maybe they're asleep. I don't know. Maybe they've passed away and need to be replaced. Um, this isn't uh, usually what happens uh, with us on on the radio. Um Let's see. Do I? I'm, I think I have just enough time as long as um, we have a little bit of time before break. This is um, an exchange that took place uh, on uh, Morning Joe. Joe Scarborough was interviewing Nancy Pelosi, and he was wondering why Joe Biden's economic success was not something that people seemed to be aware of and they weren't celebrating and what was going on with that messaging. Part of the reason I want to ask this is we're going to be talking to a political consultant, Peter G. and Greco, and I want to talk to him about messaging, among other things. But this was the exchange with Joe Scarborough and Nancy Pelosi on Morning Joe. Listen to this. A conservative like Gerard Baker, who is the editor emeritus for The Wall Street Journal, Talked about winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Winner of the year, America's economy. And he said, sorry, I know I'm going to upset a lot of people. But as Caddy says all the time, America's economy, Joe Biden's work and America's economy is the envy of the world. How do we get that message out to voters? Well, again, uh, I used to say when I was speaker, I can bake the pie or I can sell the pie. It's hard to bake and sell at the same time. Mm -hmm. He's been working very hard and now he has to sell it. Right. He has to sell it. And again, this is a very responsible, knowledgeable, values based person who takes his responsibility seriously. Now it's time to campaign, make the public aware of it. And that's almost ready. The pie is ready. (laughs) No, I hear they're coming out of the gate. So messaging. Nancy Pelosi said when she was speaker, if she was baking the pie, she couldn't be selling the pie. Hmm. When we come back, we're going to be joined by political consultant Peter Greco. We're going to ask him about pies right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. 
Peter Gian Greco is our favorite political consultant, and it has been way too long since we got him on the radio. Peter, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, Happy Birthday. Sorry I didn't see you at the Christmas party. We decided not to have it this year, but it'll be back next year. How are you? I'm good, and I'm sure you say that to all the political consultants. <laughs> your favorite. No, no, just you, just you. <laughs> you missed, you missed. Happy national championship to all of us Michigan Wolverines uh, as well. Uh, so I went to college at Ohio State, so we really don't talk about any kind of Michigan sports. We pro- uh, we pretty much are convinced. Uh, Michigan doesn't really exist. It's a myth that's been created uh, just to annoy us. So, uh, sorry, not going to go there. Not going to get that from me today. Uh, but nice try. You know, that's why you're so no, good no, at your but job. I, I, think you, <laughs> I think you refer to the University of Michigan uh, as that, that team up north. Mm-hmm. And, and now you'll just have to refer, refer to us as that national champion from up north. I'm sorry, so I can't I just... hear you. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. There's a bad connection, bad connection in my mic. Um, uh, let's uh, let's reset this and uh, talk about politics. I want to yeah. talk to you about messaging, 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 messaging. We just played a soundbite. Nancy Pelosi was on uh, Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough, and he basically said. You know, the economy is doing great. It's because of Biden. Why is it that that message isn't getting out? And Nancy Pelosi said, well, you know, when I used to be speaker, I used to tell people I can bake the pie or I can sell the pie, but I can't sell the pie and bake the pie at the same time. (laughs) So who's selling the pie? That's what I want to know. Is nobody selling the pie? Well, I, you know, I think the pie is harder to sell now, um, no matter who president is. I, I think there's something about uh, going through the pandemic that has sort of broken people's lens. Um, uh, it, it's hard for a lot of people to say that things are on the right track, no matter what's going on. Um, uh, but I think particularly when you look at the national economy, uh, there's lots of facts and figures um, that you can show that this is as strong an economy as we've had in 30 years. Uh, and you can pick all your statistics, but I think the difference is, um, you know, people still go to the grocery store and still feel like they're paying, you know, even though inflation's been cut in half, uh, people still are paying too much for eggs. Uh, their mm-hmm. grocery bills, uh, the, the, the price of gas has dropped by more than a dollar. It's, um, down, you know, almost as low as it was uh, under the previous president. But people still think that's too much. Mm. So even though, like, it, 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 it you know, the, the, this is the, the best jobs economy of all time, um, they've pulled off, the president has pulled off the near impossibility of a soft landing out of inflation without going into recession. Uh, from an economist standpoint, this is a great economy, and that's why you're seeing the the, the stock market go up, um, and and all and and wages, real wages, which is you know wages are actually growing faster than inflation now, which has not happened in 30, 40, 50 years. But people still have this COVID hangover where they just don't feel like they can get out from under. They're much more afraid, even if they're doing well, because mm. most Americans are 
doing better, they're still worried that something's going to trip them up coming. So there's this kind of fear of the future that's going on right now. And I think that's what the Biden administration's up against. Jen Psaki. So it's not so much that it's not so much that they don't want the pie baked or they don't want to buy the the, the, the pie. They think the pie is bad for them. You know? oh, like they're on a I diet. Yeah. And, uh, I w- there was a speech that Jen Psaki made to a group uh, months ago. Uh, she was somebody had asked her about polling, and uh, she said that in her experience with the campaigns she had worked on, that the polling really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. She said with the presidential campaigns she was familiar with, that usually a few months before it's time to vote, like say maybe, I don't know, August, September, she said there will be some big event, whether it's something to do with the economy or something to do with a a military event. She said a few months before the election, there always seems to be something big that happens and that event and how people feel about it will have as much to do with how they vote as any other policy or any other uh, issue that they describe as important to it, maybe possibly even even more. You've worked on a number of presidential campaigns. Have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, this is just a, another of the hundred reasons why Jen Psaki is one of the smartest folks around. Um, I mean, it, presidential campaigns are a completely different animal than everything else, than governor's races, Senate races, big city mayor's races, because in those other races, you can spend money and, and uh, you know, communicate a paid message that actually moves numbers. In a presidential race, that, that, you know, ironically, the paid media and the, and the digital stuff, the direct mail, the TV ads actually matter a lot less. And it's really, really? more about... Yeah, it, it's really more about what happens every day, you know, not just in the media, but everything that happens on social media um, uh, and what happens organically. And, and, and that's really what drives presidential campaigns are mo- the kind of moments that Jen Psaki's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you go back to um, 08 and, you know, you know, you had the, the economy was in total meltdown. Uh, Bush's numbers were were really in the toilet between the, the the Iraq War and the economy, and McCain decides to do this like you know home run pitch, you know swing for the fences, and tries to go in. Well, I'm going to go pass this legislation. It was total disaster, and, and it was one of those moments where, uh, not unlike you know he, he he took a big swing with putting Sarah Palin on the ticket, and that blew up in his face. There were just moments in that campaign that were defining and, and, and helped uh, Obama win. Uh, I think you had some moments like that um, with Hillary Clinton's campaign, where it was really not about the TV ads. It was more like all of a sudden, uh, you know, they say, Oh, we're, we're reopening the investigation of the emails. And then, you know, all hell breaks loose in October. Um, so I think there are these moments, you know, sometimes like they're called October surprises, Sometimes they happen sooner than that. But 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 these campaigns are driven more by moments. And I think the moment that might be coming is what happens if Donald Trump is is convicted in any of these cases. That well, could be the moment where where it changes. Let's, the face let's of the talk about that. What what does happen? Because I think what happens is nothing. 
I uh, unless that man has to turn himself in and go to jail, I, I think that a scenario where he's making his acceptance speech and lifts up his pant leg to show everybody in the audience his electronic monitoring device, I think that's potentially that could happen in the very near future. It's very unpredictable. I mean, it's sort of like for years and years and years, um, folks on our side of the aisle were trying to figure out, like, if, 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 if the worst case scenario happened and Roe versus Wade were overturned, what would happen? And you could sort of predict it. You could sort of guess. You could sort of figure out that it, it might change the landscape. It wasn't until the Dobbs decision actually happened. And it really did. I mean, the, the Republicans really should have swept uh, governor's races and swept, uh, uh, you know, control of the Senate. Con, you know, all of these other races that they ended up losing uh, were not for the Dobbs decision last time. So nobody saw that coming. Nobody really understood. It's just one of those moments that you you don't know about it until it happens. And it could be, you could be just right where he gets convicted and all it does is rile up his base and he gets better turnout and he wins. Uh, or it could be that moment where there's just enough and it only has to be five or 10% of the Republicans who voted for him four years ago to say, I just can't do it. I just can't put the country through a constitutional crisis of electing a guy who then has to be let out of the hand, the white, the white house in handcuffs. Um, I don't know if you heard, no, we just, we won't know. We won't know it till we see it. Yeah. I don't know if you heard any of Adam Kinzinger's recent interviews where he was advising the Biden campaign, what he thought was the most effective way to go after Trump. And he said, since Donald Trump's um, only real core idea is that he is a winner that that's that's how you go after Donald Trump. You um, you call him a loser. You call him a complainer. You call him a whiner. And he said, you don't do it just once. You don't do it just twice. But you do it every time and over and over again. And he said then eventually his feeling was you get to a point where Donald Trump says something and Joe Biden can just go, oh, there he goes again. There he goes right. again, the whiner, the whiner. What do you think about that kind of a strategy to get under Trump's skin? I, I, I think it, I think that works um, uh, because that is the veneer. And, you know, once you break that, you can break a lot of things down. Now, but the Trump folks, the flip side of that, uh, which I think is really good messaging on their part, is if they can put me in jail, you're next. So well, it that's becomes true. less about him. Peter, you break and, the law. And, I break the law. Yes, we will go to jail. That's not a threat. <laughs> that's just how that's reality. No, no. But he's saying I'm being put I'm being persecuted because of my political views and they will persecute you for your political views. Uh-huh. But I I think except for his hardcore base, everybody thinks that's bullshit. Uh, that is. This guy's that this guy is a lawbreaker. And in the end. Um, there are a lot of people, um, particularly in the middle of the electorate, who believe um, you're innocent until proven guilty, but they also believe no one's above the law. They don't care how rich or how powerful or how famous you are. Mm-hmm. You break the law, you go to jail. Um, and I think that's where Democrats actually become the tougher sort of 
dare I say it, law enforcement party line. Oh, my goodness. There are a set of rules. Are we the you party of law rules, and order you now? You pay the price. Oh. I, I wouldn't use that those terms, but, like, we're the ones that play by the rules. And just like you who play by the rules and get screwed over by all these big corporations who, who overcharge you, who are eating into your paycheck every day for their profits, they don't play by the rules. And guess what? This guy doesn't play by the rules. So it, mm-hmm. it, it gets to the same place that the Trump campaign is trying to get to, which is people feel, you know, like they're up against it, uh, that everybody's out to get them. The system's out to get them. Um, where it works on our side is they believe corporate profits, corporate profiteering is something that Republicans turn a blind eye to and that Democrats are actually on the side of working people. And I think that's where you got to get this to is we are a country of laws and we're a country of rules. And when big corporations break them, the Democrats will stand up to them. And when politicians of either party break the rules, um, there should be consequences. And I think that's where you get to a values place where people say, yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, Peter, explain to me about the use of surrogates. What is the benefit? When do you do it? How do you do it? Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people think of surrogates in the form of like other elected officials, you know, the Barack Obamas of the world. Um, who can go and, you know, get big crowds and say big things and, 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 you know, sort of, um, you know, help, help get our side on the democratic side, rile up our base, get people to come turn out. And to me, the, 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 the better circuits are, are the people who, um, have been affected, um, you know, by what's happened. I, I you know, talk about the woman in Texas who couldn't get an abortion, uh, even though uh, she want desperate is a mother is a mother who desperately wants to have more kids, mm-hmm. and whose doctor has told her that carrying this unviable pregnancy to term could mean she could never have a kid again. To me, that's a surrogate that's worthwhile, because what we know is if if Trump wins. They win the Senate and they win the House. They there will be a national abortion ban. It will happen. And what the what what happened in Texas will happen in Illinois and New York and California, regardless of the state laws. And so to me, that's a surrogate that's that has so that story has much more power than Barack Obama or Gretchen Whitmer or some other political figure out on the stump you know, saying something political. I think it, I think it's the real world stories that connect to people's, um, you know, yeah. uh, worries about their own lives. That their own resonate lives. with their, uh, resonate with their own experience and their own values. Yeah. Yeah. Like it happened to me, it'll happen to you. If this, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I think really broadening the message too that it, Trump is not the only threat here. The threat is, they control the House, the Senate, and the executive. Uh, they already control, they've already got a 6 3 margin in the Supreme Court. There's no checks and balances. And these, these guys, and they're almost all guys, will, will change America, will take away your rights. We, this may be the last free and fair election we have if, if, if Trump and the Republicans control all three um, branches of government.
Peter, as a political consultant, is it your do political consultants like um, weigh in on, hey, this is a really important idea. You know, this should be a part of the messaging. I think this is how it should be structured. Is that kind of what a political consultant does? Explain your job description. I mean, our our, our job description, um, you know, in, in in most campaigns, it's it's um, you know, it's a binary choice, right? <laughs> you vote for the Democrat or the Republican, and our job is to set up our candidates' greatest strengths um, against our opponents'. Um, biggest weaknesses and frame a choice for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we do where it usually, uh, yeah, and there's lots of behind the scenes conversations and sharing of, of, of data and stuff. Mo- mostly it's when, when, when somebody goes and runs a campaign, um, you know, it's like the NFL when, when somebody comes up with uh, a new scheme, a new play, you know, a new way of, uh, you know, it's a copycat lead. Everybody wants to, copy what works. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what happens in our business. It's less about uh, the consultants um, driving policy. It's usually about a really good candidate who who runs on a really strong message. And everybody says, gee, we really ought to, you know, when Gretchen Whitmer said, we got to fix the damn roads, it really cut through in Michigan. Uh, and so other people are saying, how do, how do I talk in a real plain way? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that actually matters to people and stuff, you know, using, you know, using a big, you know, policy speak and the other gobbledygook that a, a lot of elected officials um, use because they're in that fight. That's what they're doing every day. And so they're uh, they don't think that, like, you know, uh, they need to put it in a way that, that the audience can can comprehend. And so I, I think there's politicians out there who've been really successful, run good races and 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 people want to copy that. That's generally how the sort of consultant class sort of moves uh, ideas around. Is hey, we it worked in it worked in this it worked in this race. You should try to use it in your race. But wouldn't the things that are really effective for a particular candidate be sort of um, singular to them? I mean, I, I, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, that was a really good example. And that sounds like a very Gretchen Whitmer thing to say. Um, You know, we all get very plain talk, God knows, from from John Fetterman. But because something worked for John Fetterman, I can't see like, you know, advising, you know, maybe Illinois Congressman Brian uh, Sean Caston. Oh, this really worked for Fetterman. You know, you should say things this way. It seems like it's it's got to be tailor made to the particular person. Right. And, and, And not just to your to your candidate, but to your opponent as well. I mean, uh it, you know, but I, I think abortion is probably, you know, uh, been, you know, the, the big one uh, you saw again in Virginia. It was really effective in flipping the House of Delegates. Um, you keep seeing it happen over and over. It was certainly in, in, in 22. It was the race. It was certainly what drove Janet Protasiewicz, who was a client of ours, winning the state, uh, state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin and flipping the court, um, uh, which will now you know, flip their 1849, you know, uh, the ban on abortion that was, you know, written before the Mm -hmm. Civil War, that's all going to flip because 
of that race. So uh, that that's an issue. I think the emerging one of the emerging issues here uh, is not only a national abortion ban, but um, increasingly Trump and the Republicans are talking about, again, re- repealing the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, just two days ago, it was announced the Affordable Care Act hit a record, record enrollment, 20 million people. So now every single one of those 20 million people, they work for a living. Mm-hmm. And, the, and if there wasn't the Affordable Care Act, they wouldn't be able to afford health care. That is what works with people. You talk about middle class people. You talk about people with pre-existing. If I got a kid who's 26 or under, they're going to kick my kid off of my health care. Um, this, I think, is an emerging issue that I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats jump on Congress, Senate, President. Everybody says that while he may not have a great education and quite possibly isn't uh, capable of reading, that Donald Trump has a kind of a, a street fighter, street sense of the audience and his followers. I agree with what you've just said. I think the ACA is a winning issue. I think abortion is a winning issue. And on what planet is Donald Trump still talking about repealing the ACA? And I'm sure you heard the soundbite recently where he said, yeah, overturning Roe v. Wade. That was me. That was me. I did it. That was it it was a miracle. It was a miracle. So here again, here's. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, 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 you know, playing God. (laughs) I did that. It was a miracle. I don't think that was a good look for him. I think that's going to be a problem for him going forward. But again, it's not just Trump is not the only threat here. And I think this is really important for Democrats to understand. It's the threat that they will control the Senate, the House, the White House and the Supreme Court. Nobody wants one party rule in this country. Even the even the most diehard Democrat um, is offended by that notion. And there's a lot of people who will vote Republican down the ballot who may say, you know what, there's one vote I'm going to throw the other way. And it's, you know, either my House candidate, because I think the Democrats can win the House back, or I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Joe Biden because I just I'm I'm afraid of one party rule. They don't. Most of the folks are in the middle. They want people to collaborate. They want the parties to work together. And they know if they give one party complete control of everything, it's not going to work. It's, it's not going to end well. Hmm. I, um, I just don't understand why a message that has proven to be so unpopular, they, the Republicans, many Republicans, seem just utterly unable to let it go. Like, not only do they not let it go, but frequently they're doubling down. Oh, yeah, you know, federal abortion ban. And, you know, I think we really ought to rethink birth control and in vitro fertilization. Yeah. Well, that's an act against right. God. we got to stop all that. It's like, could you dig the hole any deeper? Yeah, I mean, it, look, this is this is what happens when you're driven by ideology and not really about what's good for people. Um we sometimes have that problem on the left. There are some folks uh, on the left who are just Medicare for all or bust. And even within our party, uh, most people say, I'd rather take the ACA and make it better 
than to tear this whole system down and start over. Uh, so if your own party isn't with you on that, imagine where the independents and, and, and the few Republicans that are in play are. So so it's a problem when you when you are a slave to an ideology. This is more happens on the right than than on our side. But sometimes there's just you 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 it becomes a religious a, 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 an almost religious, um, uh, you know, ideal uh, that you have to do it one way. And um, that's generally not how politics works. And it certainly isn't how government works. Uh, and sometimes you got to find uh, a way that maybe uh, doesn't fit all on a bumper sticker, but actually gets people what they need and is actually better for the country. Um, we're almost having to go to news at the top of the hour, so we may have to continue this converse, this conversation. But recently it came to light that, I guess a while ago, Obama had a meeting with Biden and was very concerned with the way the campaign was structured, that there's too much centralization at the White House and not enough people spread across the country that have the power to make statements without having to get everything cleared up the food chain. And somebody said to me that the the meeting itself had taken place weeks ago, and the fact that it was leaked showed increasing frustration on Obama's part that Joe Biden's campaign needs to have a more flexible structure. I want you to start talking about that now. I may have to interrupt you because we've got to do news. But off yep. the top of your head, where do we start with that idea? Well, for, for, first of all, stories don't get leaked to the Washington Post like that in Obama world uh, unless it's done intentionally. Mm-hmm. This was not an oops, that story got out. That was a message sent um, to folks in the White House and and. Uh, to the current president, that um, the, the pace at which they're hiring. Look, every presidential campaign is better the sooner they get a state director and a state communications team in all the battleground states, because they figure if you got the right people, they figure out uh, different angles on national issues that play in those states. Uh, they understand where our vulnerabilities are better. Um, they just they got their ear closer to the ground and they tend, tend to come up with more creative ways to move message um, and, and to move it uh, in a big way. You know, where, where you're using relational organizing and social media to really amplify things in a better way. So I, I think that's the, the notion there is um, uh, as well as building a field operation, by the way, we, we, we've got to build a turnout engine. And we've got real issues on college campuses right now. We've got real issues with black and Latino voters where base mobilization is going to be difficult. And it's not going to be something you can do by spending money in the last eight weeks. It's got to yeah. start with organizers on the ground now. Oh, God, I've heard that so many times from so many people who study this, that you can't just parachute in and uh, think that everybody is just going to fall into line. I'm talking to political consultant Peter G. and Greco. We're going to take a break for news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by political consultant Peter G. and Greco. We've been talking uh, right before the break about reports uh, that may have been leaked very by the Obama camp themselves that they met with uh, Biden, Joe Biden and his um, White House staff and suggested that the campaign not only needed to kick things into high gear, but needed to decentralize 
Apparently, there is a structure in place now where pretty much everything flows from the White House. Uh, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but when Joe Biden ran last time, wasn't there like a, a course correction during that campaign where uh, I believe it was a woman who had worked with Obama came in and kind of shook things up? Yeah, I think that's when, uh, uh, you know, Anita uh, Dunn moved in uh, over there and there were some other folks that moved in. But um, look, that this happens in presidential campaigns all the time. Um, often um, the folks that, that start the campaign sometimes aren't the ones that are that are running the show at the end. Um, and, and why uh, is that? I think, I think because is, whatever they're doing isn't working and it's so let's get somebody else in here or 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 are there well, other well, reasons? No, I mean, presidential campaigns just always grow, you know, in size and in complication. And so you're always adding folks, um, you know, usually you're running a primary campaign, you know, in a contested primary, you got your head down and you're just trying to get to the number of delegates you need to win the nomination. Um, and then you have to retool for the general election. Uh, Obama did that. Uh, the Biden folks did that. Um, and that's a natural course here. And I think I think. I think the uh, consternation right now is that um, the natural course of growing the campaign is a little uh, stilted because, um, you know, there's they're you know, they do their weekly campaign meetings, sometimes uh, crises at the White House uh, will cancel those meetings. And so you're putting off decisions uh, about messaging, about uh, the president's schedule, about hiring state directors and communications people in the states. And you're losing time. Look, in, in campaigns, it's the maximum. You can always make up money, but you can never make up time. And I think that's where the consternation is, 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 is the, the Biden-Harris reelection right now um, is sort of structured the way you'd structure it in, in the summer of the off year. And they, they, we're in the on year now, and they, mm-hmm. they, the campaign needs to grow and evolve. Mm-hmm. And one would think it would have to happen Fairly quickly, what are we, something like 200 and, or 287 or some 288 days out? Um, it's, right. it's here. Yay! It's here. It's all but here. Um, and, right. and, uh, and, and you can see a little bit of the paralysis. I mean, even before um, the Washington Post piece uh, that you referenced over the weekend, Elena Schneider from Politico wrote a story a couple of weeks before that. Um, where there was a lot of grousing about why why aren't there state directors, why aren't there communications teams. And sort of to blunt the story, uh, the Biden folks announced their Michigan state director. Well, it's like if you need a state director in Michigan um, in the in the December of 2023, why don't you need one in Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia and the other battleground states? Um, and the answer is you do need them and they are behind. And this mm. affects, like, you know, the ability... Like, it shouldn't be tough to figure out to, to make these hires. There's lots of talented people who want to get in this fight, work for the president, believe in Joe Biden. Um, but the mechanics of making decisions is incredibly slow because it's still all based at the White House. And so I think that's where the, the, the plea is for somebody, you know, like Jen O'Malley, uh, uh, Dylan, to leave the White House and go move over to the campaign so that a lot of these decisions that are not major uh, national 
international domestic policy decisions, which is what they deal with at the White House every day, that just the day-to-day operations of building a communications uh, uh, capability, of making decisions on their own, of building a field operation that, like, you know, let the campaign go be the campaign. And they need somebody who's of of that White House inner circle to move over or someone with equal heft. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't happened yet. And I think there's growing calls for that to happen. One of the things that I want to talk to you about today is um, the threat of violence and sometimes violent acts that seem a lot more prevalent in our politics than I can remember in the past. Um, you know, we've seen Judge Chuckton, Judge Angeron, um, bomb threats and swatting. Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project uh, was posting a lot about a recent swatting event. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's when uh, generally somebody gets a burner phone so that it can't be traced and they call in to the police department, to the 911 line, and they'll say something outrageous. Like, I think in Rick Wilson's case, they said there was there had been a murder or there was a dead body in his house. And so at 3 a.m., there's like seven SWAT cars and and law enforcement is pounding on his front door. He said he walked out in his T-shirt and his boxer shorts He said even though he does have a concealed carry permit, he was smart enough not to bring a weapon to the front door, walked out with his hands up and explained the situation. Everybody was very nice. Everybody was apologetic. But it was um, it's a terrifying thing to have happen. And Rick Wilson did a did a podcast. I don't know whether it was yesterday or, or it was it was within the last few days. And uh, he talked about this swatting incident and how he was going to be reacting to it. Peter, listen to this. But I will say to the person that that is going to get ratted out or caught eventually. I will hunt you down. I will prosecute you until your life is over. I have time, resources, and spite. And the idea that you can terrorize people and threaten people, they wanted me to shut up, Tara. They want me to go back and go, oh, man, this is too much. I can't handle it. Oh, no. This is not the way to do that. Obviously, they don't know. I'm not going to talk bad about Trump now because they threatened me. Get okay? I will go harder now. I will fight harder now. I will press on more intensely now. I will not be bullied or terrorized out of a deeply held political belief that Donald Trump is pure evil. I will not be bullied or terrorized by a bunch of people whose incestuous mouth breathing cousin makes them feel like they've been put down by the world and they don't try to improve themselves. They just try to drag the rest of the world down with them. This is not cool. It is not acceptable. I will never tolerate it, but I will also never bend the knee. It will never happen. Try harder. Now, uh, Rick Wilson is, um, as, as he described himself, as a pretty spiteful, tough guy. But for a lot of people, this kind of thing can be traumatic and derailing. Is it my imagination or are we seeing more violent threats, more violent attacks related to politics than we used to? I I don't think there's any question about it. And most of the 
most of the anger and most of the vitriol comes from the right. I think you just look at, uh, you know, the case of the two election officials in Georgia who were harassed at their home, um, you know, who were who were like driven to like mental illness because of the and it all comes from Donald Trump. Right. He he lays out the, uh, you know, the order. Uh, He he fires up the base and they go do whatever he wants. It's when he said to the Proud Boys, stand down and stand by. Mm -hmm. He knew in that moment at that debate that if they lost, they were going to do January 6th. It was it was always going to be. He started it in the middle of the summer saying you can't you can't trust the election results. Um, So it was this was January 6th was not an accident. January 6th was planned from the middle of the summer is where the seeds were sown for it. It went through extensive planning that was very close to the White House, uh, inside the White House. Um, And I think Jack Smith's going to be able to prove that. But what you have here is a whole, uh, you know, bunch of couch commandos who are just waiting to get the answer to go out and buy the burner phone and do that, to go throw a brick through somebody's window, to go terrorize local elected officials, because they don't believe in democracy. They believe in might is right. And they believe that because they have this messianic view of their politics, that they are right. Everything that the Democrats stand for is evil and wrong. And they're justified in doing anything that the ends justifies the means. Um, to 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 overthrow an election, to to uh, intimidate election officials. So it's happening, and it, it it it's flowing through society. It's getting so trivial um, that a guy on the U.S. Uh, uh, World Junior Hockey team that just won the gold medal in Sweden decided he didn't want to play for the Philadelphia Flyers, and they traded him to another team. The guy got death threats. He's a 22 year old hockey player. He okay. got death threats I mean, because not, he didn't want to play yeah. for Philadelphia, or was there something else? No, that was it. His 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 singular crime was that this is not a team I want to play for. I would like it. He requested a trade. He got death threats. Okay, that's where we are now. That didn't happen before Donald Trump, and so you're seeing it. It's not. It's not just in rhetoric. It's not just going after the Rick Wilsons of the years. It's going to election officials at every single level and going after school boards. I mean, it's it's a complete erosion of small D democracy in America. And it's it is done with 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 Trump at the top. And like I said, the couch commandos just waiting for the order. They just sit there and watch Fox News uh, and they they consume um, conservative media over the Internet. And they. They they think they are part of some army of God that will, you know, that they're that they're they have this righteous cause and they can do anything and say anything racist, sexist, violent doesn't matter. There's no rules anymore because they're right about everything. Now that this genie is out of the box and we have this sort of atmosphere, do you think it will outlive Trump? Let's say Trump keeled over tomorrow. Would this sort of what you just described, this sort of violence makes me right or violence is just a useful tool, would that continue? Would it eventually die out? Or is that just a part of who we are now, Peter? 
I, I think it's a part of who we are now. Oh, because there's no, 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 don't give me that answer. Give me a different answer. Well, this is the problem. We don't have one Walter Cronkite where we all believe the same facts. And so there's people who listen to your show, Joan, who have a who have a, a, a an ideological point of view, one that I agree with. But if I don't like this one, I can go somewhere else on the radio dial and find something that's 100 percent diametrically opposed. And because the fragmentation of media and the rise of social media, it doesn't matter what facts are anymore. A, a, a lie and a conspiracy theory can go around the world before the truth gets out of bed. And, you know, we, we saw it here in Chicago with uh, the rumors around Connor Bedard and, and, and what happened with the Blackhawks was completely and utterly false. But it was all over social media uh, that, you know, that one of his teammates was inappropriate with somebody in his family. And it was a complete lie, but it, it rocketed around. So if that happens over something as trivial as a hockey team, what do you think happens in politics? Uh, so it, 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 this is a problem until people like we can get back to a place where we all have an agreed uh, set of facts and an agreed set of rules that we follow. And see, that's what I think this election is about. This literally could be the last free and fair uh, election in America if Trump controls the Supreme Court, the White House, the Senate and the House, if he's got all four levers of government. We, we, we may never have an election where our, voice, where our numbers are really counted. Uh, right now, we have an election system that works, um, and it defies our politics. Right now, the only thing we got going for us is that our election system worked. It worked in 2020. It worked in 2022. It worked in 2023. And as long as that happens, as long as the American people have a voice, we're going to be fine. It's the forces around Donald Trump. Um, and, and, you know, the Stephen Millers of the world who are ready to come in, they're ready to set up camps and put political people that don't agree with them. They were going to put Rick Wilson in a camp. That's yeah, and, they, and they want That's to, um, they they, Trump's already, already said he's going to go after NBC and MSNBC and charge them with treason. Right, right. Because, you know, you have to have committed treason to know what treason means. Mm. Um, so. Uh, so Trump's got that one cornered. So, I mean, at least addition, uh, um, if you want to get into the legal terms, terminology, but that's where we are. That's the, so, you know, for folks in our party who are upset about, you know, what Joe Biden's doing on the border or what Joe Biden's doing on the economy or what Joe Biden is doing or not doing, this, this election is so much bigger than Joe Biden. And it's time to get off the couch and get engaged because literally your voice may never be heard from again if we lose this election. It's, it's, to me, it's that critical. I think so, too. Peter, are you worried about no labels and RFK Jr.? Uh, yeah, I, I, I am. I mean, there's some less so RFK Jr. because he's so out there and all the conspiracy theories. is There's some data out there that suggests he actually might take more from Trump um, than from Biden. So I, I worry less about him. I do worry about a no labels Joe Manchin kind of thing, throwing the election. Um, uh, I think Joe Biden can win. You've, you, you've seen, um, you know, in head-to-head numbers, the Quinnipiac poll in Pennsylvania was the latest, uh, where he was down three, now he's up, or he was down two, now he's up three. That's a five-point swing. 
Um, yeah, it's within the margin of error, but you know, you're starting to see some decent numbers in New Hampshire and some other states where if it's a one-on-one fair fight, um, you know, Joe Biden can win. Uh, but I think if you, if you inject a mansion onto the ballot, uh, and, and let's just be clear, the no labels thing, um, may have started as a bipartisan exercise. This is 100% a Republican Trump controlled uh, organization, Mark Penn has gone over to the dark side. Um, and so if they field a candidate like Manchin, it's for the express purposes of beating Joe Biden. It's not about growing a third party or making the country more bipartisan or building a consensus candidate. They can't win an electoral vote anywhere. Uh, so all they're going to do is throw the election one way or the other. And there's plenty of data that suggests that they would throw the election to Trump. That seems really clear to me. It seems really clear to you. And yet I talked to a dear friend of mine who is a Republican and they but not a Trump Republican. And they were all excited about no labels. And he told me that the research shows that a third party candidate can win that, you know, And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just listening to this and I'm thinking, oh, my God, do you really believe that? I mean, you go, oh, the polling that we've done polling and it really shows um, that, you know, this is a, a, you know, potential political party that's got a shot. And I was like, how could somebody so smart be so naive about this? Um, And I just it just. Well, I mean, they're they're buying the spin from Mark Penn, who once upon a time was a Democratic pollster, was the chief strategist um, for Hillary Clinton in 2008. Um, I'm not a very good strategist, I might add. You know, she should have won that one and she lost it. Um, Who's kind of gone over to the dark side. I mean, he is a corporate, um, you know, stooge at this point. And, um, you know, the polling that he's done is so ridiculous just from a, a methodological standpoint of, do you want to vote for Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or some unnamed candidate who is a wonderful person and a, mm-hmm. you know has this like fake bio that doesn't that that doesn't uh, uh, you know line up with Joe Manchin or anybody else on the planet, and then they roll it out and say, "Oh, we can win electoral votes if this is the three way race." It's it's ridiculous on the face of it. Um, so that's that that's where that's coming from. It's not naivete. It's it it, it it's buying uh, Mark Penn's. Uh, you know, fantasy polling um, that's not really based in reality or science. Hmm. Yeah, I was um, I was pretty I was pretty disappointed when I heard that. Well, uh, one last real important thing that I want us to cover. I've been hearing more and more about um, disaffection with Joe Biden on the part of African-Americans, particularly black men. This this. A supposed refrain that Biden hasn't done anything for them. So why should they vote for Biden? Well, maybe they'll just punish Biden by either not voting or voting for somebody else. And the first time I heard it, I discounted it. And frankly, the second and third time I heard it, I didn't put much stock in it. But it seems to be a message that is um, inescapable uh, no matter where you turn. What do you think about that? I, I think it's real. Um, I, I think there's been, you know, qualitative data out there 
where when you listen to black voters, particularly younger black voters or black men, there is a frustration. And this isn't just Joe Biden. This is, you know, that it's not a majority, but it, it, it and in fact, it's a pretty small chunk of the black vote that feels this way. But it's such a critical uh, piece of uh, the Democratic coalition that it's a it, it's a it's a genuine problem. But it's sort of like I've been voting Democrat for 50 years and nothing's better in my city is is one way that it's pronounced it, it is articulated um, when we when we do, you know, qualitative research. The other one is we're spending, you know, billions of dollars overseas in these other wars and you're not doing anything in my neighborhood. Uh, you're not doing anything to take care of crime or create jobs or uh, make health care more affordable. Uh, but you got plenty of money to, to spend in Israel and Ukraine. And so the, it, 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 mm-hmm. it's a real problem and something that the Biden folks have got to figure out sooner rather than later, because um, even without no labels, um, you know, the 2020 election was was in a skin of the teeth. And you could you could it was so close that you could point to any. Uh, group, but certainly uh, Biden's, you know, uh, strong, strong numbers among black voters. Um, he couldn't, he wouldn't be president without them, without those votes. And so um, uh, it, it, those votes aren't, aren't there now. The, you can, you know, there's public polling out there that has Trump, uh, you know, polling at, you know, 15, 16, 19% of the black vote. And that's just not, it, it, I don't think that that's the way it's going to end up. That's just a snapshot in time right now. And I think it's a frustration with the economy and lots of other things. Um, but um, it, it's something that's got to go get fixed because there's no way to, to win in places um, like Georgia, um, North Carolina, um, you know, even Pennsylvania, Michigan become more problematic um, if you're bleeding double digits um, of black vote over to Trump or to a third party. Peter, thank you so much for um, agreeing to join me on the radio today. I love talking with you um, and getting your experience and insights. And um, this is just the kind of conversation that my audience really eats up. So thank you. Well, thank let me leave you, you, with, you. One, with one with one last thing. Sure. It has been one. It has been 1,504 days since Ohio State has beaten Michigan. Oh, my God. We were doing so well. We were having such a nice conversation. And Peter (laughs) Giangreco just takes us down into the gutter to wrap things up. I'm I'm still going to say nice things about you, but it's going to be harder than it was before. So thank you so Uh, much. Take care, my friend. Hope to see you soon. All righty. Going to take a break and be back with more after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, I'm sure you've seen her byline in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, but this Chicago Tribune reporter is now going to also be known as an author. And she's written a book that is near and dear to the hearts of uh, all the progressives and liberals and just plain kind people who listen to this radio station. 
Angie Levantis is here to talk about her new book, Life Altering Abortion Stories from the Midwest. Angie, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with what motivated you to turn these stories into a book. Um, Well, the book centers on the U.S. Supreme Court's historic decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it was a dramatic moment in history. But I had been reporting for a few years prior to that on a lot of um, the stories of women in Illinois and surrounding states and their own abortion experiences. And some of those stories were really salient for a lot of the issues that we saw after the fall of Roe. And I thought uniting them all together into like one voice would really help people understand what was happening on the ground after Rose demise, but also give some predictions for the future or glimpses at what might be taking place after federal abortion rights were no longer available. Your book really ties in perfectly to a discussion I just had with political consultant Peter Greco because I was asking him about surrogates and what their use was with a campaign. And he said that most people think of famous people like Gavin Newsom as a surrogate. He said, but what is really most effective is regular people telling their stories about how something has affected their life, whether it's positive or negative. And, you know, that's exactly what the people you've been talking to are sharing with you exactly what has been going on in their lives since the fall of of Roe v. Wade. Um, And you didn't just talk to these people once. I mean, didn't you with some of these folks sort of follow their stories over time? Some of them I followed over time. Some were interviews at clinics before or after their procedures or um, mid-medication abortion. And some I never talked to again, and they didn't return calls for follow-ups, which is totally fine. Other people, though, they were really open to having multiple interviews. Some were stories that recounted abortions from days ago or from even decades ago. And there were some women who let me in their homes and let me see, um, you know, their medical records, their photographs, their diary entries, letters they'd written. And they were just very open about their experiences. And they were very different experiences and very different perspectives. Tell Um, us, if you you wouldn't mind sharing one of the stories from somebody who had an abortion a long time ago. So one woman was a Chicago woman. Um, she had an abortion decades ago prior to the fall of, or prior to Roe v. Wade. And it was an illegal abortion, which was kind of interesting to me because that sort of sets up what a lot of women might be going through in a, in a very different context now. Um, she recounted having an abortion in her mid-1960s when she was 17. And she didn't tell anyone at her high school that she was pregnant because she believed she wouldn't have been allowed to graduate with her class, which could which is probably true because I was in high school in the late 60s, early 70s. And 
a girl, I can't remember, I think she was the year behind me, got pregnant, and she was shown the door. She recalled that there was a student in her school who just somehow one day wasn't there, and then months later came back, and no one ever knew what happened, but there were a lot of rumors about that. Mm. So I, we'll never know, but that was kind of in the back of her mind as she was making her own decisions. Um, she described a week, a summer weekend in 1966 when she and her mom, who lived on the north side of the city, they got into the back seat of a car of a stranger who drove them across the city to an undisclosed location on the south side. They weren't given an address. They weren't given a name. They walked all together, all three of them, to a very nondescript building without any signage, which was actually an underground abortion clinic. Nothing on the outside would tell you that it was a medical clinic. Um, and she and her mother were never told the name of the doctor who performed the procedure, and they were never given a clinic name or anything like that. It was just a very highly secretive process. She describes herself being very lucky in some ways because it was safe. Um, it was clean. It was a doctor, as far as she knows. Um, but she remembered walking through the door thinking this was her only chance to preserve her future. And she told me, my gut said this is my only option to not be my life. My life would have been over. And she hadn't really talked about her abortion much over the decades. She told her story in the Tribune in 2019 um, during the Trump presidency as several states were passing really, really tight gestational restrictions that had been nearly unprecedented at that time. And she was really alarmed and wanted to issue a warning call. In that story, she basically predicted that Roe wouldn't survive much longer. And then I spoke with her again um, on the day that Roe fell. And she wasn't entirely surprised. She expressed, like, real worry about folks in other parts of the country where ending a pregnancy would no longer be an option. And I thought her words that day were pretty profound. She said, for a long time, I had the feeling that for feminism and for women's rights, that we had won the battle, but we are losing the war. I don't believe I will live to see women's equality. And that makes me very sad. Sadly, I, I have to say I agree with her. I mean, I look at my daughter who's in her mid-20s, and I never would have imagined that she would live in a world where, as an adult, she is starting to lose some of her rights. Things that, you know, because we used to, you know, have discussions about this when she was in high school. And it wasn't anything that she and her friends gave any thought to because it had always been there. It had always been there, and they had no reason to believe that that it would ever go away. And um, a, a, a really feel, interesting idea to me, because yeah. many of us have only known a time when abortion rights were constitutionally protected in the U.S., just something that for a lot of us, either, you know, throughout our entire adulthood or our whole lives, it's been there. And a lot of people in the book believe that it was taken for granted. Yeah. Oh, I think absolutely it was taken for granted. I mean, I and I know this for somebody who pays attention to politics. This is going to make me sound really naive. But even after the leak uh, from the Supreme Court, Angie, I still never believed they would go through with it. I couldn't imagine them overturning Roe. How did it affect you? Well, it affected me because it made my life a lot busier because <laughs> I'd already been reporting on this. Um, it wasn't 
a surprise for a lot of us who've been covering this because uh, our sources on both sides of the debate were were predicting this for a while. Um, but it started to surprise me years before. This was something that I hadn't really thought about until I started reporting on it. And I actually began reporting on this almost by accident. Really? Um, I had never given thought to abortion. I had not covered abortion. And then one day in 2016, I was looking up flu numbers from the state health department. And I accidentally stumbled on this thing called the Illinois abortion report. And I had, I had really, if you'd asked me, would you want to cover abortion back then? I would have thought that's kind of boring, you know, like abortion's legal. It's legal in Illinois. It's legal across the country. It's controversial. Sure. But it's always been controversial, right? But I stumbled on this number that, that stood out to me, and it surprised me, that a little over 3,000 patients were traveling to Illinois to terminate pregnancies every year of the roughly 40,000 abortions that were performed in 2015. And at the time, that seemed like a lot to me, so I began exploring why so many folks were crossing state lines. And I learned so much that back then really shocked me. At the time, neighboring Missouri was down to one abortion clinic, which seemed really strange to me that an entire state of six million people that borders Illinois could have such a different landscape. Um, And many states in the Midwest had all of these mandatory waiting periods and required two visits to a clinic. And the results were very different abortion laws across state lines, sometimes varying from like zip code to zip code even. You could cross over like a bridge and have a completely different set of laws, which was fascinating to me. Um, so then I started looking into it, and I also realized that a lot of the voices out there explaining this and talking about reproductive rights were very male. Male po- men who are politicians, activists, historians, both um, pro-abortion rights and anti-abortion. But there were very few abortion patients in the mix. So I started trying to talk to as many people as I could who'd had abortions to get a variety of experiences. If you wouldn't mind, could you share another story with us? So there was a couple um, who went to Hope Clinic in Southern Illinois, and I met them there. It was a really sad story in a lot of ways because they really wanted the pregnancy they really wanted to have a baby together and were excited, but it had an encephaly, which is, um, yeah, it's a fatal abnormality. And it was, it was just a very tragic case. But there's a lot of, unfortunately, I mean, it might not be the majority of cases, but there are a lot out there like it. Um, but they, they weren't sure afterward if they ever wanted to have another child again because it was just such a painful experience. Mm -hmm. But um, a few years later, they did decide to conceive and I followed up with them. And um, at the time, she was in her second trimester, I believe. She recalled hearing about the leak that the Supreme Court was planning on overturning Roe v. Wade and she attended a protest in St. Louis And she was visibly pregnant, but described, you know, just this overwhelming sadness that people might not be able to make the choice that she felt was best 
for her and her circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she just described the sadness when it actually did come down. Ugh. And that's exactly what she was worried about is exactly what we just saw in Texas with the woman who was pregnant, had already had a couple kids, wanted to have more and was told that there was a, a genetic defect that if her fetus survived at all, it the the child would live just literally like a matter of minutes and be in excruciating pain. And the state of Texas said, oh, yeah, but that's not a reason to get an abortion. Oh, we, that's that's no we no we said there would be exceptions, but not that. That's like a choice. That's like they're making a choice, and you know, thank God they were able to go to a different state to have that procedure. Um, it's so interesting. While we were having this discussion, Andy, who's back at the studio, just texted me literally just minutes ago. Uh, the Sun Times. Uh, reported on, uh, posted a new story on abortion. You said that one thing that triggered your interest in this mm-hmm. as a reporting topic was the fact that even when it was legal, 3,000 women yeah. traveled to Illinois. The Sun-Times is mm-hmm. now reporting that nearly 17,000 patients came to Illinois from other states to have abortions since 2022. Um, the Chicago Tribune also reported that, but a little oh, bit earlier. Oh, did you? Did the Trib? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. No, I want to give did. credit no, where credit's okay. due. Andy! No, Andy, I the Tribune! It. We should have given the Tribune <laughs> credit on this one. Thank you. No, that, that was, I mean, that was part of it, too, is that this number has just, Illinois' role in the Midwest has been magnified since the fall of Roe. And the number of out-of-state patients has just absolutely skyrocketed. And when you look at the number of -of out-of-state patients, it's amazing. It was a 49% increase from year to year. But when you look at overall abortions, too, the number has increased tremendously. Now we had roughly 56,000 this year. That's the most that we've had any year since 1995. Um, And that's driven... By this increase in out-of-state numbers, it's become more apparent over the years. There was actually a small decline from 2021 to 2022 in the number of in-state residents who had abortions in Illinois. The other thing that was really interesting about that data, um, it offers a glimpse at how other things have shifted post-row. There's been some evidence that abortions are occurring later in pregnancy, which can make the procedure more complicated and increased risk. Uh, abortion providers have told me this anecdotally, but now it's also being shown by the state's public health data. In 2021, there were nearly 2,200 abortions occurring at 16 weeks or more gestation, and that's increased just over 3,100 in 2022. So this certainly isn't the norm. Most abortions are way earlier in pregnancy. Most of them in Illinois are before 11 weeks. A lot are even before eight weeks. But this is the shift is concerning the healthcare providers on the ground who are describing all the different ways that restrictions and year bans in other states can delay care, and that has an impact on patients. One of the things that I think is important by your book and the reporting you've done, when back in the uh, the dark ages when I was a reporter, um, I sometimes covered abortion and protests. And back then, there seemed to be this sense from the people who were anti-abortion that the reason women got abortions was just 
um, because they were too lazy to take birth control or be careful. And it was just, um, oh, I don't have to worry because if I get pregnant, I'll just have an abortion. Like it was this cavalier decision um, that just to make things more convenient. And I never understood how people could really embrace that as the singular main reason for undergoing this procedure. One of the things I know you talk about in the book are the all the different factors that influence a decision to abort a pregnancy. Go through some of that with us, if you would. There were so many different stories and so many different reasons. One common thread I found, and, and there's some um, women in my book who regret their decision and they identify as pro-life. There are a lot of different people who are very comfortable with their decision and never wavered in that. There are also people who view it as truly a dilemma. Um, there was no good solution and this was the best one they had, but all of their choices were painful and this was the one that they felt was the best for them. Um, one common thread though, is that a lot of people, they were really adamant that, that they were not being irresponsible, that they used birth control, that they took mm-hmm. that very seriously and that they took their decision very seriously and that it was, Sometimes it was hard, sometimes it was easy, sometimes accessing care was very difficult. But this, this mind, I mean, that was why the title Life Altering was chosen, was that for whatever reason, this, this permanently changed the path of their lives. And it was a decision that was taken very seriously. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you have seen, if not on the actual show, clips of it, uh, when uh, Cecily Strong was a member of SNL, a couple of times she went on their a news quote unquote news segment to in a in a clown outfit to talk about how um how basically her story was how she had gotten an abortion in her early 20s and it she said you know that her life would not have turned out the way it did her she would not have been able to do the things that she wanted to do had she not made that decision and had that not been an option for her. And I think what you're doing, when you humanize this issue, I think people really can understand um, everything that's going on so much, so much better. There's a lot of humanity in these stories. I mean, people were, it sounds like people really shared a lot with you. And I think that's ultimately why these folks decided to be part of the reporting and part of the coverage, because there were a lot of people that I spoke with who at some point dropped out and said, you know what, I just don't want to go public in any way, or I just don't want to do it anymore. But they did speak to me for a while. I think it's cathartic to share. And it's also totally fine if someone doesn't want to share. That's helpful for me as a reporter to learn and to better understand this. But I think there is something just about sharing your story and wanting to be humanized. It was interesting. One, um, one woman asked that I use her first name to reference her, which isn't really the way it's done in journalism. You usually use a last name on second reference. But she said, you know, I think if it's my first name and people refer to me as my first name and that's what they hear, I'll seem more like a person. Mm. 
She's not wrong. No, I think that really struck me. And I asked if I could do that. And I did um, with all of the people that are named. What was what was something that putting all these stories together, one way in which it surprised you or moved you or maybe altered your thinking? I guess I'm asking, collecting these stories, what effect did it have on you and your thinking? I just, I was stunned by how many different types of stories there were, how many different perspectives people had. One thing I was really interested in is where people were coming from in their lives, not just where they were in that moment, but you know, there were people who described growing up in very conservative families or religions that that wouldn't be, be okay with having an abortion, and their views on that changed due to their life circumstances. Um, some people just said they never really thought about it. It wasn't something they might have said, "Oh, I, you know, I believe in the right to abortion in theory," but they never really thought about what that would mean for them. And. People's views can change dramatically based on their circumstances, and those circumstances were vast. I mean, they they were different ages, different backgrounds. They lived in different parts of the country. They were different races. Um, And they all faced this decision and really had had to look at all different aspects of their life when making it. And that was just really interesting to me. Um, it, it is it is really fascinating. As you have reported on this issue, uh, it is very controversial. It is something people feel very, very emotional about. When you publish articles in the Tribune, what kind of comments do you get? What kind of feedback? The feedback to the first article I did really surprised me. There's always kind of nasty comments or rude comments or just blippy comments. But there were also a lot of really thoughtful, and some people started sharing their own experiences, saying, please don't publish this, or some said, reach out to me. Um, I was really kind of surprised by the depth of people's responses. The woman who I spoke to about first from Chicago, who had the abortion decades ago in the city, she sent me an email after one of my stories ran and just started telling me about her experience. And I said, would you want to share it in the Tribune? And she said, sure. Hmm. And that was kind of profound to me that somebody would, you know, just, I think she was moved by the first story I wrote and that encouraged her to come forward. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure she got the sense that you were, a receptive ear, you know, the, a, a non-judgmental space where a story could be told. Um, and I look forward to reading your book. By the way, uh, the book is um, not out till January 29th, but it is available for pre-order. I'm, I saw it on the Barnes & Noble website. I'm sure it's available on other sites as well. But you can pre-order it now, and it comes out January 29th. It's called Life-Altering Abortion Stories from the Midwest. Angie Leventis, Tribune reporter, book author. Thank you, Angie, for sharing uh, some of this, some of your reporting, some of your book with us today.
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And it's published by the University of Missouri Press. Okay, so we can find it that way, too. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Angie, as you continue to report on these issues, you know, reach out to me. Reach out to me anytime there's something that happens that you think is worth talking about. I'm the door is open for you. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me today. It's an important (laughs) issue to me and it's it's an important issue going forward for um, Illinois, the Midwest and the nation. Yes, it is. Uh, That's going to do it for me today. Um, I believe Dan Schaefer is in for Patty Vasquez today. Um, Have a great weekend. It is Friday. That's right. (laughs) I will will be here Monday at 2 o'clock. So uh, until then, have fun, but stay safe, my friends. Have a great weekend. Stay warm. Good night.